This podcast is brought to you by Brilliant, a marketing and design studio based in Washington, D.C., where their team of designers, strategists, and human engagement experts build brilliant brands, campaigns, and revenue strategies. Contact them at brilliant.co. That's B-R-L-L-N-T dot C-O. Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Macharco, host of DC Entrepreneur here on WERA 96.7 FM. In the studio today, we have Sahaj Sharda. He is the founder of Dinos and the author of The Extinction of the Price Tag, How Dynamic Pricing Can Save You. Thanks for dropping by today. Thanks for having me, George. I'm really excited to be here. So Sahaj, we connected, what, uh, maybe about a month ago. I know you've been doing work promoting your book. Talk to me about the extension of the price tag and how you came about authoring this book. Yeah, so the premise and thesis of the book is uh, actually pretty simple. What we're saying is there is a mass movement in retail towards uh, dynamic pricing as opposed to fixed pricing. And what we mean by, by dynamic pricing, a really simple analog for that is think about how Uber prices its products, how Priceline prices its products, how Lyft prices its products, how Amazon is increasingly starting to price its products, where the prices are constantly changing based on various levels of demand at various times of the day. And it's affected by factors like weather or distance or your proclivity to pay. And so we're seeing this mass movement already happen. And so the point of the book was to tell all these independent business, small business owners, that you guys have to hop on this train because you might get left behind if you don't take access and reap the benefits of dynamic pricing. So talk to me about how a startup could use dynamic pricing in their business venture. So I'll give you a really simple example. Um, I was talking to a guy who's an investor in a local gym in, in Northern Virginia, and he was telling me, you know, we're trying to look at different ways to bring in people at, at some of the slower times because what's interesting about his business is people kind of clump together in terms of what hours they go to the gym in. And then if it's 24-hour gym, at other times it'll be entirely empty. So I said to him, you know, why don't you think about doing a very simple type of dynamic pricing, which is just offer discounts for personal trainers at some of your slow times? Because these are people that you've already hired who are just kind of loafing around and you can actually fill up those hours because if you don't, you're just losing your entire investment on their wages. And even at a discount, you're still making a profit by having people come in. And so, you know, that's something I don't know if they implemented or not, but that's a very simple analog for how you can use dynamic pricing in a very rudimentary way. It doesn't have to be super sophisticated, but it can still benefit you in very obvious ways. So it sounds like you can use this for real estate, as you just mentioned. What other types of services or products could you use dynamic pricing for? So perishable goods primarily are, is a really, really easy market to use dynamic pricing in because in terms of how the logic works, you know, if you don't sell something, you're going to throw it away. It's easy to sell to people that, you know, giving discounts isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, when, when I'm talking about dynamic pricing, there's also a flip side. So it's not always going to be discounts. It's not always going to be things that are good for the consumers. Sometimes it might be, you know, price surges to try to increase supply of goods. Um, and you see this with Uber on New Year's Eve and, and things like that. But so perishability of a good is, is a very important analog because by actually matching that to supply and demand, you're able to sell the most at any given period of time. And that's the most important thing when it comes to perishable items. Another important criteria is if it's a high volume item or not, right? So if you're if you're like a private jet company 
and you're selling like a plane a month, it doesn't make sense to dynamically price because when are you going to change your prices month to month? I mean, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense because your marginal difference isn't going to be that big in terms of the quantity you're selling. And all that's going to really change is your margin very slightly. Instead, in that kind of market, it probably makes sense to continue with fixed pricing. But where, you know, dynamic pricing we're increasingly t- seeing take place is in these markets where there's a ton of high volume. And, and that's why you see all these marketplaces increasingly getting into dynamic pricing. I'm thinking of like Amazon, for example, or people who are getting online and selling their own products online you know, merchandise and whatnot. And so those types of products where people can either buy and buy again, or there are enough people where a lot of people are buying all the time, those types of markets really benefit from dynamic pricing. One place that I've seen dynamic pricing used is the high occupancy toll lanes on 66 and 495. So it seems like transportation planners have started to adopt this model. But one of the things that I always think about is sometimes you can look at the surge pricing like an Uber and you can look at the surge pricing in a hot lane yeah. and it'll be like $20 just to use a lane for your car. Yeah. Um, can dynamic pricing also be bad for business? So there's basically two questions in, in that question that you just asked. You know, one is, is, does it make economic sense to do it this way? And the second is, does it turn off consumers in a way that's bad for the broader brand, that's b- bad for the broader business? So when you're talking about 66 toll lanes, in some senses, I'm not going to go flout and defend that $20 toll lane, but I-, I can explain the logic a little bit, right? What they want is to reduce congestion because when 66 is congested, no one is benefiting. Everyone is losing out because it takes you two, three hours to get home. And especially if you live on that, you know, that stretch of 66 where it gets really, really bad, that is terrible. No one wants to see that. So what they've tried to do is by rationing the good somewhat by increasing the price of actually accessing it, they're sort of making the people who stay on the lanes better off by allowing them to get home faster. Now, in their you know, in their sense, they're basically saying this is a better outcome than people being congested and everyone having free access. Now, you can disagree with that or not, um, but that that is what they're trying to do. But the, the second point I'd make is this. Um, you know, yes, at times it might seem for a consumer that, you know, these high surge prices are adversely affecting them. But if you think about Uber on New Year's Eve, how are you going to get home if there isn't an incentive for people to drive at those times? If you can't get cars on the road, you're not you're going to be stranded or you're going to, you know, drunk drive and and there's a lot of adverse implications of that price not adjusting that way that we don't actually factor in when we're talking about these types of things. So, yes, there are some 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 significant drawbacks when it comes to the consumer side, especially if it's not done in the proper way. But I would say overall, you can see that in a lot of ways, yes, the price might go up and consumers might you know, be adversely hurt by that. But they're also oftentimes countervailing benefits that also help consumers. And that's the trade-off that, that you're basically making when you implement dynamic pricing. I think it's interesting when it comes to services and products for corporations. But I think when it comes to something like a public good, like, I don't know, the, the highways, I mean, we're, we're accustomed to paying for those through our taxes, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're not used to having a, a corporation kind of govern that. So now you're the founder of Dinos. Uh, tell me about Dinos and how you became an entrepreneur. So I'll tell you the story that kind of inspired the idea that then led to Dinos. I was in India with my grandfather actually last summer. And one day, he took me to a bazaar because he knew I was getting bored at home, didn't have a lot to do. And so he took me out to this bazaar. And and for those of you who don't know, it's this informal marketplace teeming with people 
and food carts and vendors on the street who are selling off of carts for their own goods. And so in this very eccentric market, I saw one food cart vendor who was yelling at his consumers at 12 p.m. And I was looking at him and I was just thinking it to myself, you know, what is he doing? Why would he possibly do that? And he was vigorously negotiating with the people who were coming to his his booth and trying to buy some of his delicate food goods. And he was just yelling and he's being really aggressive. And, you know, at, at one point, I think he almost pushed a guy. And so I'm walking with my grandfather and I said, you know, what is he doing? And my grandfather just says to me, that's just the way he is. So, you know, I, I we just move on. Uh, I, I, I didn't really recognize what was happening. And so my grandfather's shopping and he's shopping and he's shopping. And eventually I nag him enough where, where he turns around and we start going home. And on our way back, it's now 3 p.m. We're walking the same route that we came in. And that food court vendor is still there. And at 3 p.m., he's totally reinvented himself. Like it's incredibly shocking how he's able to put on these two different faces. And so at 3 p.m., he's being incredibly charming. He's telling jokes. He's being nice. He's offering free goodies in addition to the purchase that you're making. And so it's a complete 360 uh, or 180 on, on, on what he was doing. And I saw this and what was really, really interesting to me was at 3 p.m., he was just as busy as he was at noon. And what's more is he was selling everything in his cart. So there was nothing that went to waste. And he was doing an incredibly rudimentary form of dynamic pricing, basically. He was basically matching his prices and his attitude to levels of demand. And where he could get the highest price, he was getting it. And when he couldn't, he was offering discounts and and bringing more people in through that mechanism. And, you know, something just clicked for me when I saw that. I thought, you know, in the United States, I've gone to restaurants my entire life. I've seen them throw things away. I've seen Panera, uh, you know, basically give out tons and tons of food to homeless people. And I was just thinking, you know, is this something that can help solve the problem of food waste? Is this something that we can use to kind of solve that preeminent problem that's so prevalent in the restaurant industry because of the perishability of their inputs? And so I was thinking about that and I was thinking about that. And then I just talked to a lot of business owners. I talked to a lot of restaurant owners and I said, you know, is this something you'd be willing to try? And, you know, a lot of them said, yeah, maybe. And we tried it. And we tried it at Georgetown University and the surrounding off-campus restaurants. And we've just grown from there. It's, uh, it's been a really organic process. I think you touched upon something that's really interesting to me, which is your story about traveling to India and seeing this in action. And my question is, is dynamic pricing just another way of negotiating? You're absolutely right. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. So uh, one of the you know key arguments in my book is dynamic pricing isn't new. It's something that's as old as commerce. And what we're seeing now is instead of instead of explicit negotiating, dynamic pricing is just a way of implicit negotiating, where people basically have this like mental uh, mental model of what they think something is worth, and they're going to wait for the price to dip to that, or they're going to buy something if they're really desperate, regardless of the price. And companies and and consumers are basically playing this delicate dance without ever communicating it to each other. And in some ways, it is more efficient. Um, just the the risk is that in that lack of communication, there could be brand liability where some people are upset by some of the some of the purchasing uh, you know purchasing opportunities that they're presented with. I think also too what what comes into play, especially when it comes to products and goods, 
uh, is the fact that it's it's really based on volume in a lot of cases, right? Um, so wholesalers obviously can negotiate a different price for purchasers than somebody that's just buying one or two items. Um, how does this come into play whenever you deal with like luxury brands or something like that? Because there's obviously a perceived value that these brands have. Are they able to implement this type of dynamic pricing model or does that actually hinder their ability to have a perceived value of something that is higher priced? Yeah. So, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting point that you raised, which is, you know, basically what you're saying is you know, some of these very luxury high end types of goods, if they're constantly changing the price, will people think that it's not so attainable? Will people think that it's cheap? And price is sort of one of the mechanisms that they use to convey their value. Um, it's almost used as a proxy for quality. And so the question is, you know, if they did dynamic pricing, wouldn't that actually make people want it less? And there's an argument to be made there. The, the one thing I would say is there is a massive opportunity for people who can weld together dynamic pricing and branding and build a brand out of that. And what I mean by that is when you think about Uber, you know, a lot of people do complain about the fact that they do dynamic pricing and that there's surge and all of this. But on a another level, because of the way Uber's constantly communicated about what they're doing, you kind of think that their dynamic pricing is a reflection of their efficiency. It's built into their brand narrative. They're so efficient that they're even doing pricing efficiently. And so, you know, if there are luxury brands that can kind of figure out an angle of doing that with dynamic pricing, that's a huge opportunity for them because luxury brands, you know, primarily are entirely about supply and demand. It's a, it's a, it's a very seasonal good. I mean, you know, anything that is luxury can last only as long as people think it's still cool, it's still new. And so if you're able to get rid of your inventory, that's the entire game. And so it would be incredibly interesting to see how they're able to kind of navigate those waters. So let's talk about your journey as an entrepreneur. What drew you into entrepreneurship? To, to be quite honest, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily attracted by the, the label of entrepreneurship. That wasn't something that growing up really appealed to me. I was always interested in, you know, public policy, in government work. Uh, it's part of the reason I went to Georgetown because I was interested in politics primarily. And what interested me about politics was leadership, how you can basically lead and get something done on a, on a whole range of issues to make people's lives better. And so when I came about doing entrepreneurship, it was really from the angle, wait a second, there's something inefficient about this market that can help restaurant owners. It can help consumers by making food more affordable at certain times. You know, It, it seemed like a no-brainer to me. And I was really going at it from that angle. And, and part and, you know, that's one of the reasons I made a lot of mistakes when I first started. Um, I started building things without talking to people, um, just thinking that if you build it, they will come. And that's just not how that works. Uh, I started, uh, you know, building out features that weren't necessary at, at the very beginning. Um, I didn't test a lot of my assumptions. And uh, all of that was because I was coming at it from a totally different frame. I was coming at it from a, a, a top-down frame as opposed to a bottom-up frame. And that's something that's totally changed as I've learned more and more about entrepreneurship, about how to actually build a business. And so in a lot of ways, we've actually gone back to the beginning, talked to consumers, figure out what features they want on Dynos, and we've redeveloped the app with those things in mind. And we've scrapped a lot of the things we originally started with. And it's been really interesting for me to to see these two different ways of thinking um, really play out. Tell me what the best advice has been that you've gotten as an entrepreneur and what's the worst advice that you've received? 
I would say the best advice is to always listen to the customer. Put him, put him or her uh, first in every single decision that you make. Because at the end of the day, especially when you've just started a company, that is make or break. I mean, as you know, with this podcast and, and some of the other things you do, you've built a community around what you're doing. And, and that's one of the reasons I'm on this podcast today. I used to listen to your podcast and I loved it. And it, it you know, it's something that I've become a fan for life. If, if you're building a new product, you need those people because they are going to do the marketing before you can actually afford to do it yourself. They're going to be your biggest ambassadors. They're going to carry your flag over the mountain. And so if you can't get those people to actually care about the product, then you're doomed to fail. You just you can't have, you know, part time followers. You you need those real fanatics for your product at the very beginning, and so that has been one of the most important pieces of advice. And uh, in going and talking to their first thousand users, um, that's definitely something that I've come to understand in a totally different way. Because what you think people are going to use a feature for is oftentimes incredibly different from what they actually use it for. And it's been it's been really interesting for me to learn that. In terms of the worst advice I've ever received, you know, I I talked to too many of my friends at the very beginning um, in terms of, you know, what do you think about this concept? Is it something you would use? And, you know, it's not that they were lying. It's just that they didn't have the right perspective. I needed to go and talk to strangers who were from my test market because they wouldn't care about hurting my feelings. Were these peers from Georgetown? These were peers from Georgetown. Okay. And uh, so, you know, at the very beginning, we we loaded up the app with a bunch of features that people didn't really ever use. We added like a maps feature to Dinos onto the main screen. Um, and at the beginning, you know, we weren't we weren't targeting the right market segment of people who would actually use something like that because they weren't driving. Everyone in Georgetown just walks. So it, it was uh, it was, you know, that took up a ton of time in terms of development for very little output. Um, and that's something we've added back as we've expanded to different areas because there are people who drive and who use that as more of an explore feature. But, you know, those types of things, y- you have to talk to people who don't know you, who don't know the product, who at least yet don't have a dog in the race because uh, if they do, uh, you know, you're going to get biased feedback. And, and that's the worst thing that you can have at the very beginning. So you've mentioned Georgetown and your studies there as well as your community of peers. Talk to me about how Georgetown has played a role in your background as a startup founder. It has in a lot of ways. Uh, I think first and foremost, um, you know, being able to take a class, randomly walk into a class and the professor says to you, okay, everyone, we're going to be writing a book. I mean, that is something that I don't think you'll find at any other school. And this is the Creator Institute, This is the Creator Institute. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eric Custer is doing some incredible work with a lot of college students uh, who are getting published uh, with New Degree Press and and getting their credibility uh, through that mechanism. And so I'll actually tell you the story of of how I kind of got grandfathered into writing a book. Uh, What happened was I was looking for courses on the course catalog in the fall semester of this year to figure out how I can learn about how to build a startup once I'd had the concept for a Dynos and we'd start to develop a little bit of the functionality. And so in the course catalog, I saw something called launching the venture. I thought, okay, yeah, I mean, that's what I think it is. That's what it sounds like. So I walked in. 
Um, and I sat at the front of the, in the front of class, but I came in like 15 minutes late. So I thought, you know, maybe there's something I missed because the professor just started saying, so to write a book, you need X, Y, Z elements. And he's going into so much detail about all of these various processes about how self-publishing works and how publishing houses work. And uh, I'm just thinking to myself, this must be a case study. This must be something that another student has done. Oh, that's pretty cool. Someone got published. Um, and it didn't click for me at the beginning that this is something that he was going to make everyone in this class do because the premise of launching the venture wasn't teaching you how to do a startup. It was teaching you how to publish a book and use that as an analog for what launching a startup is like. And so I'm sitting in this class and I keep coming back for a few more classes. And I think, you know, this is a, this is, this case study is really in depth. He's, he's really covering a lot of very specific details uh, that I don't know if they're relevant to everyone. And by the time I finally recognized that it was, it was a class where you had to write a book uh, I wanted to pull out. I wanted to get out of the class. And so uh, I went to the professor and I said, you know, this seems like an interesting concept, but I don't think it's for me. And he said to me, you know, the deadline for dropping out passed a week ago. <laughs> and so <laughs> I got I got uh, I got stuck into writing a, a 40,000 word book and I enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned that there's an analog of you know, launching your book and, and uh, promoting it that's similar to starting your own business. What what exactly do you think that you learn through that process? When you create anything, be it a product in the form of an app, in the form of a book, in the form of a podcast, there's a ton you learn about how you find the product market fit. Um, when I first came up with my topic, which was about dynamic pricing broadly, because I wanted to do a case study so that there were still synergies with diners, um, I found that there's so many ways in which this kind of content could benefit small business owners who are looking to figure out what their competitive advantages are and how they can be more nimble in the marketplace. Um, and you know, by by doing this process, I was able to by interviewing people in this space, I was able to figure out, well, these are the people who need this information. You know, this is the kind of content I need to create. And that constant feedback loop of talking to people and iterating my content based on what the people needed, uh, that was so important. And that's something I learned when I was doing the book that I then applied to diners, like I described earlier. When you first were in this class, you said that you you, you didn't think you could handle doing the book. What, what changed your mind besides m- missing the deadline <laughs> for, to, uh, to actually withdraw? Like, where in the process did you find that you had the confidence to say, I think I can do this? I think it's something where I, I, I always believe that if I'd wanted to, I could write a book, just the same way I believe that if I wanted to, I could be a professional soccer player. It's it doesn't click until you really get into all of the training and hard work that's necessary to actually create that content, that this is something that you're going to have to level up for. You're going to have to really learn some skills in terms of you know what it's like to actually get the information you want out of an interview, what it's like to actually figure out how to structure um, you know advice that you're giving out, because if it's obtuse, no one's going to benefit from it. And all of these things are things that you learn throughout the process. And as you learn, your confidence grows. And as your confidence grows, you're inspired to learn more and more and more. And so the advice I would give to anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur, who wants to create content, is just start doing it. You know, Don't do it in a way that's expensive to you. Don't do it in a way that trades off with a lot of other valuable things. 
especially if you're young and, and you need to focus and prioritize some other commitments. But figure out what the least costly way of of creating something is for you, creating something that you're passionate about and just start doing it because you're going to learn a lot more by just doing it and actually then applying the lessons of all of the mistakes you've made as opposed to hearing about someone else's, you know, someone else's successes. And the reason I say that is because, you know, if I tried to teach someone uh, how to be an entrepreneur in a different industry, it'd be like trying to teach someone linguistics if they're trying to learn, I don't know, like uh, Arabic. You know, it's, it's a, I can teach them how to learn Arabic, but I can't teach them Arabic because I don't know Arabic. Um, and so it's it's all about knowing who your customer is, and you can you can entirely learn that process um, by just creating. Just as a reminder, we're speaking with Sahaj Sharda. He's the CEO and founder of Dinos, as well as the author of The Extinction of the Price Tag. Sahaj, tell me some of the entrepreneurs that you admire personally. There's uh, there's a ton. I mean, obviously all, all of the famous ones, but you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs that have inspired me are actually a lot more local. Uh, there was a amazing institution right outside of Georgetown University that uh, befell some tragedy recently called Wingos, and uh, unfortunately, their store location burned down a couple of weeks ago. Um, and they're recovering, and they're they're going to come back stronger than ever, hopefully. But um, there's the guy who ran Wingos was this guy named Mike Arthur. And when I was writing the book, I went and interviewed him and he told me this, this incredible story about how respect has to be earned. It isn't given. He, uh, he founded Wingos a long, long time ago. It's been there. It was there forever. And there was a new guy around 2006, 2007, I think, uh, who started Georgetown Wings Co. on M Street uh, to compete with Wingos for that wings market uh, within that broader Georgetown community. And, uh, you know, he had a nicer location. Um, he spent a lot on marketing. And one day he went and sat down with Mike Arthur and he said to Mike Arthur, I just want you to know I'm going to be your competition. And Mike Arthur kind of was taken aback. He thought it was an incredibly uh, arrogant sentiment from a guy who's new on the block um, and this is a guy who is incredibly proud of of the the quality that he produces, and so he took offense by that, and he just said back in anger, um, "You know, I don't pay rent. Uh, I own the building. I can lower my price to basically nothing until you choke on your rent and die, <laughs> and something you know really aggressive like that." And this other guy was taken aback, and they continued to fight back and forth and back back and forth over the next couple of years. And eventually Georgetown Wings Co. had to shut down because Mike Arthur was entirely right. I mean, he had a lot of competitive advantage within that micro market. But what I learned from him was, you know, you never go and try to hurt someone or try to try to boast to someone um, when, you know, if he had come out and said, you know, I'm, I'm new to this space. I'd love to learn about how Wingos was so successful. They could have had an entirely different dynamic. One conversation changed the entire destiny of his business. And it was it was incredible for me to kind of see that in action um, and, and how that kind of played out. Huh, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Now, some of the other stories that you mentioned in there, you, you, you've spoken to a lot of people in the area and, and about dynamic pricing. We were mentioning George Akerloff, who's a professor at Georgetown, who blurred the book. Um, how did you find uh, help from the existing community that you're working with at your university? Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting question. Um, and I think 
the answer is that I found help in a less deliberative way than uh, I probably could have or I might even should have. Um, I was when I was a freshman, I was walking around the campus um, and I just enjoy talking to people, hearing their stories. And I was walking around campus and and, uh, in one of the buildings at Georgetown University's campus, I walked in and there was uh, an elderly fellow uh, who was giving a talk and there's free pizza. So that was what really attracted me to begin with. And so I went in and I heard him speak and he was talking about this concept of identity being really influential on how you make economic decisions and that being something that traditionally economists have ignored. Wait, wait, repeat that again. Identity and mm-hmm. economic decisions? Yeah. What's the convergence of those two concepts? Right. So he was talking about how, you know, you buy a Ferrari because that makes you see yourself in a different way. Um, and how things like price don't have nearly as much to do with that purchasing decision as the identity that you're trying to achieve does. That 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 story of how you see yourself and, and how you convey yourself to others. Um, and so that was the concept that he was trying to explain to us. Uh, and he was talking about all sorts of historical examples uh, from kings of, of England who uh, kept trying to conquer lands in France because at the time that was the more prestigious territory uh, to all sorts of examples. And, you know, I was thinking about that. I thought that was incredibly interesting about how that is kind of that it's so true. I mean, it's you think about a lot of the pivotal decisions you make in life, how much of it really is about the cost-benefit analysis? How much of it is about, well, if I do this, this is who I could be, you know? And, and that's a sentiment that's so, so powerful. The emotional side of things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know marketers always try to tap into the emotional side because that's yeah. how people do make decisions Yeah, yeah. is they're able to reach that. Yeah. So you're saying that we're not as analytic as we think we are. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's making this point. And um, this is something that traditionally economists have overlooked. Um, and he's sort of uh, uh, an iconoclast in that way. And he's basically advocating for this position. I thought all of those things were really interesting. And so afterwards, I went and chatted with him. And I asked him about his research, about, you know, where this this concept of identity and economics is going next. And we were talking and talking, um, and he asked me to stop by, uh, you know, within the next week to chat in his office. And I had no idea that this is a Nobel laureate in economics, by the way. This is just someone I thought who might be a professor, might be someone who's just giving a talk about a theory that he just came up with. Also married to a former Federal Reserve chair. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's a lot of economic knowledge in that family. Um, And so, uh, you know, I went and stopped by his office. And it, I, I only then did I realize, oh, this is a guy who has won a Nobel Prize, who's married to a former Federal Reserve chair, who is so distinguished in so many ways, who, who has contributed so much to the world. He's talking to me, uh, a freshman at Georgetown University, who has, in comparison, contributed next to nothing. But I think the takeaway from that story was, if you're authentic and you share ideas in, in the right way, and you're not looking to leech value off of someone by by you know making them up to be something that they're not, you can basically connect with anyone. Now, this is what I would say to entrepreneurs: you know, don't be in awe of your heroes. Aspire to be that like them, but you know, try to connect with them as as people that you admire, not as people that you want something from. Great, great lesson in behavioral economics. Um, when do you know when to take the risk? Yeah, let, let me come about it the the opposite way. When I'm trying to get restaurants to sign up with Dinos, 
it's all about convincing them that taking the risk is worth it. And, you know, what I've found to be most effective is one of two things, either to try to explain to them that they have nothing to lose or to explain to them that they can back out at any time they want. So in, in a lot of ways, when you're thinking about risk, those are two things that, at least in my experience, I've found that people react to very, very quickly and makes it much easier for them to sign on to your platform or whatever you're selling. And so, you know, what's interesting to me was when I was thinking about doing dinos or doing something like dinos, I wasn't even thinking about risk. And that's one of the reasons I did it is I was just thinking about doing something that I think would be cool. I, I thought, you know, I like to eat out and I'd love discounts and I eat out at off times. Why don't, why don't we make this happen? Um, but when you are thinking about risk, you, you need to consider uh, all of the relevant factors, but you also need to be very cognizant of some of these biases that we have, which is to try to come up with rationalizations for why you can pull out very easily when oftentimes you can't and why there is no risk at all. Because, um, you know, being an entrepreneur is a substantial risk. You know, doing dinos, there's a reputational risk of if it fails, you know, this is a guy who tried to start up and failed. If there is uh, something that goes wrong, there's legal risk. If there is something that is not a sound business decision, um, there is economic risk. There's all sorts of risks that are involved that I didn't even consider, but that people really should take into account. Um, I would say you know when to take the risk based on one thing and one thing only you know, do you feel that this is something that is worth it despite the worst case scenario? And if you feel strongly that way, you have to do it because you're going to kick yourself if you don't. If you think this is something that I think could make a substantial difference, not only in my life, but in a lot of people's lives, and then you don't because of some minor risks to yourselves, I I don't think that's justifiable. And, And the way people think you know, they often, that's, that's where regrets are born. Any advice you'd like to leave our entrepreneur listeners out there? Yes. Uh, what I would say, uh, the most important thing is, is create, create, create. Um, and you know, in, in, in lieu of that, uh, I'd also like to say lastly that you should, uh, go to dinos.co slash DC entrepreneur, because I'm a huge fan of the pod. Um, we've set up a page where uh, you'll be able to get some advice about how we kind of built Dinos. And on top of that, if you use that link to download the app, we're giving you $5 free in app. Great. So that link again? www.dinos.co slash DC entrepreneur. All right. So Haj, and how else can they get in touch with you? They can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. They can email me at sahaj, S-A-H-A-J, at dinos.co. Uh, or they can feel free to connect with me on Instagram or some of my other social media. Thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dcentrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.